As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. As we listen to your word this day, plant it deep within our hearts, deep within our souls. Nourish it, help it to take root and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Kate gave us such a great overview of this passage from Exodus, which we've been working through these last few weeks in our season on decluttering. Moses and the people are now relatively settled after the people have left Egypt and figured out how to gather manna day after day in the wilderness. And now that they're relatively settled, a new problem emerges, which requires a little outside help to figure out. So hear this reading from Exodus chapter 18, verse 1, and verses 14 through 27. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also look for able men among the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their home in peace." So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over the people, as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times, hard cases they brought to Moses, but any minor case they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went off to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
More than 10 years ago, a story in the Reykjavik grapevine was picked up by major U.S. news outlets. The story was about a missing woman who had been found by herself. I don't mean that she was found alone. Rather, she was part of the search party that found her. Let me back up for a minute. The woman had gone to Iceland as a tourist, and one day she joined a large group on a sightseeing trip. At one point during the day, she broke off from the group, and while she was away from the group, she changed clothes. When the leader later reported that a woman in the group had gone missing, he described what she had been wearing, and she didn't recognize herself in the description. So she eagerly joined the search party, and only hours later did it come to light that the missing woman was not only accounted for, she had been looking for herself. Have you ever had a moment when you no longer recognized yourself? When you've gotten so deep into a way of being or doing that the realization of who you've become or what you've done is a painful moment of self-awareness. One of the first times this happened to me, I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. My friend Robin had come over, and because we both played the violin or were learning to play the violin, she brought her instrument. We fiddled around, so to speak. But let's be honest, it was not the funnest play date ever. When my other friend Lisa called to see if I could come over to her house, that sounded way more appealing. I knew Lisa's mom would let us watch TV, and she always had good snacks. So I told Robin I had chores to do and offered to walk her home, and then I ran to Lisa's house as fast as I could and had a great time the rest of the afternoon. But when I got home, my mom sat me down. And with that excruciating disappointment only a parent can express to a child, told me that Robin's mother had called to share how hurt Robin had been when I cut our playdate short to hang out with someone else. Turns out my ruse had been quite poorly executed, and Robin knew exactly what was happening. As soon as my mom said all this, I realized how rude and hurtful I had been, and I knew what it felt like to be on the receiving end of such behavior. It was miserable. And now I had hurt my friend. When we're traveling down a road we don't want to be on, often a road cluttered with moral ambiguities and uncertainties, what does it take for us to recognize the person we've become? Well, in the case of Moses, it took his father-in-law, Jethro, to help him realize how far off the rails he had gone. It wasn't as if Moses meant to hoard all the responsibility for God's people. After all, God had called him to lead the people out of Egypt. We can imagine Moses just tackling the next task that came before him, and the next, and the next, negotiating with Pharaoh, trying to keep all the people together as they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, teaching the people to trust God to provide day after day. But as the people moved out of crisis mode and settled into a routine, 
turns out they had no shortages of disagreements with each other and questions about God. And naturally, they turned to Moses for help. When Jethro arrived, he immediately observed that Moses had some decluttering to do. He needed to delegate, to share his load. Here's the thing I hope we're seeing about decluttering. It's a pattern, a cycle. It doesn't just happen once, but again and again. We've talked before about the biblical pattern of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, or order, disorder, reorder. And there's a similar pattern of recognizing clutter, doing the work of decluttering, and then eventually discovering a new source of clutter that needs to be dealt with. Decluttering doesn't just help us simplify our current situation. It reveals the next situation that requires our attention. Suleika Juad was a recent graduate of Princeton University with a plan to become a journalist. She had moved to Paris, fallen in love, and found a good job when she learned that the intense fatigue, malaise, and pain she had been experiencing was leukemia. She returned home to the U.S. and began a series of treatments, including a bone marrow transplant that lasted four long years, during which she was near death multiple times. Her boyfriend, Will, stood by her every step of the way. As soon as she was diagnosed, he left his job in Paris and moved in with her family to share caregiving duties with Suleika's parents. For months, While she was in the hospital, he slept next to her in an uncomfortable roll-out bed so he could be near her when she needed him. After she finally recovered from the transplant, they moved into an apartment together, and he continued to help with her ongoing needs and complications, which came with exhausting regularity but also infuriating unpredictability. As the months wore on, their relationship began to suffer under the weight of the caregiver-patient dynamic. Will desperately needed a respite, and Suleika couldn't help but resent that he could get a break from her illness when she could not. Eventually, their relationship fractured, and they broke up just as Suleika regained her health. That's how she found herself at 26 years old, alone, without a stable job, her body ravaged by illness and treatment, and unable to recognize the person she had become. She admitted to herself that as grateful as she was to be alive, there was something about the intensity of her illness that she missed. It had given her this clarity of purpose that had focused every decision and interaction. She felt lost and adrift, unsure who she was or who she wanted to be. When Moses and the Hebrews finally reach a place with more stability and freedom than any of them had ever known, it's no surprise the next challenge quickly presented itself. How to structure this community in terms of leadership, particularly when it came to conflict resolution and spiritual questions. 
enter Jethro. As someone said in our weekly Bible study, Jethro was one of the first organizational consultants, someone who comes in from the outside to determine how an organization could run more smoothly. And, as is often true, it turns out the answer to things running more smoothly is all about relationships, how the people interact with each other, with Moses, and with God. Now, it's easy for us to focus on the dramatic moments of the Exodus story, that obstinate Pharaoh and his ever-hardening heart, the ten plagues, each more terrible than the last, the dramatic middle-of-the-night escape, the parting of the Red Sea. But this episode, in all its practicality, when Jethro advises Moses to delegate his responsibilities, reveals one of the core values of God's people, community. What Jethro recommends is not so much a top-down model. It's one that divides the people into smaller and smaller groups where they can get to know and care for one another, which also means that when conflicts arise, there will be this foundation of connection and care from which disagreements can be resolved. We see something similar in the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus tells the disciples to divide the people into small groups to give them something to eat. Jethro's recommendation to entrust a handful of ethical leaders with small groups of people to resolve conflicts, bringing them to Moses only when necessary, keeps the people connected to one another and grounded in their God-given values. In small enough communities, we can imagine this would build relationships based on empathy and compassion. But what happens when communities grow? when the hurt that people cause each other cuts too deep, when grief and trauma obscure our capacity to see what we have in common. Well, we know what happens. We are seeing it in our world right now with Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Palestine, even here in America with all our division. What will it take for us to recognize how far we have come from the human family God created us to be? When Suleika faced that moment of disorientation after she got better, she decided to embark on a long road trip. She was, in one way, a one-person search party looking for herself. She packed up her car with a tent, some supplies, and her beloved dog, Oscar, and she mapped out a route based on the people she would visit, people who had reached out to her during her illness to let her know she was not alone. In rural New Hampshire, she had coffee with the mother of a dear friend and fellow cancer patient who had recently died. She listened and cried as her friend's mother poured out her grief. 
In Columbus, Ohio, Suleika stayed with a man who had lived for decades with a condition that severely weakened his immune system and caused an unending string of life-threatening infections and heard how, in spite of this, he built a life and a family. She visited a family of survivalists in Montana who fed her well and taught her how to shoot a rifle. In California, she stayed with Catherine, a teacher whose son had died by suicide at age 26. In the ensuing season of overwhelming grief, Catherine broke her leg and was diagnosed with cancer in quick succession. She told Suleika that it wasn't until she was on bed rest, unplugged from her usual routines and responsibilities, that she finally let herself grieve. Finally, in Texas, Suleika spent two days with a prisoner on death row who had become a pen pal during her illness. Although he didn't have cancer or another terminal illness, they shared the experience of living in the shadow of death. On this journey, in all these interactions with strangers who became friends, Suleika began to grapple with her own grief and pain and loss. She found herself coming back to something Catherine told her. All you can do in the face of these things is love the people around you. Love the life you have. In getting to know these people who had reached out to her in a time of great suffering, Suleika got to know herself again and rediscovered a sense of purpose. When we admit we are trying to carry too much alone and enter into genuine relationship with each other, we share our burdens and our pain. And paradoxically, we lighten all our loads. We are sitting at this moment in human history that feels incredibly fraught with multiple wars being fought or threatened between neighbors, people who have more in common than what separates them. As helpless and despairing as watching this makes us feel, Jethro's advice offers something we can do. We can invest more in the people, the family, friends, neighbors, colleagues, church folks who make up our community. Around our Thanksgiving tables this week, we can push past careful small talk and invite real sharing. During Advent, even as we focus on our holiday plans, we can identify a local problem and invest some time and resources getting to know the people it impacts. We can join a Bible study or FPC's caregivers group, or just come to worship to stay connected with people who share our values and hold us accountable to living them out. It is never too late to take Jethro's advice not to hold our responsibilities so tightly, but delegate, share them with those around us, or when someone we know asks for help, to open our hands and our hearts to share their burden. In the process, 
we might just find that what we were looking for was right here all along. It's us. Amen.